they've pretty much stayed with a tried and true method of using a click paw. It does have a little tension adjustment on it so that you can uh, uh, certainly adjust for whatever, whatever size leader you're using. Uh, the modern technology today, the products that they, they use to produce these super, super thin leaders, uh, you can actually catch some very large fish on very light lines because of the technology built into the drag systems on these on these modern day reels. A lot of that, again, uh, they, they owe a lot to uh, the original designs of uh, the folks back in the 18 and 1900s. That was Jim Schottenham describing the House of Hardy and their impact. Cigarette cars, horizontal reels, and lefty crazed desk, today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Did you know that we're running giveaways all this year? You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway and check out what we're giving away right now. Um, I'm not sure. It might be a bag of coffee, a fly rod, a trip. You got to click over there just to find out. It's a surprise. So we're digging into it. Before we get going, let's hear from our sponsors. Lake Lady Rods builds distinctive custom rods, each created one at a time to the exact specifications for each angler. Lake Lady only uses world-class top-of-the-line products and components. Just ask some of the governors, senators, and generals Chris has produced rods for, including Jesse Ventura. These rods are crafted to be the most sensitive to a discriminating angler could ask for. Just head over to wetflyswing.com slash lakelady to check out a one-of-a-kind custom rod now. That's wetflyswing.com slash lakelady, L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y, to support this podcast and an amazing local rod builder. The Fly Fishing Film Tour is back again. Don't miss this year's 2022 F3T as it returns to theaters near you for another great season on the water. Tons of action in this one, lots of storytelling, coast-to-coast, swag, local conservation partners, fully loaded like every year with the F3T. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash F3T to find a show near you now. That's wetflyswing.com slash F3T. Check it out. Jim Schottenham is here to take us back in time to find out some of the people who paved the way for the reel and fly gear that you are using today. We find out who was the modern day father of fly reels, how the large arbor came to be way, way back in the day, and about 10 other people who have had a huge impact and are giant names that maybe you may have not heard of them. So we're going to dig into all that today. We are taking the American Museum of Fly Fishing into the 21st century. So without further ado, here is Jim Schottenham. How's it going, Jim? Good morning, Dave. It's going great. Um, We're just preparing for a Mother Nature's uh, uh, storm that's coming up this week, but all is good. (laughs) Now tell me this, where are you at right now? Manchester, Vermont. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right in the heart of it. Right next door to the Orvis flagship store. There you go. Wow. So this is it. Yeah, yeah, you're right in the heart of it. So we just had, and we have listeners all over the, you know, all over the country, but we just had somebody yesterday that was from the Northeast and 
And they were like, all right, we need some more Northeast episodes. So we're going to serve them up today. We're going to focus on the, obviously, the history today in fly fishing. You're the curator um, at the museum now. And we're going to dig into all that and kind of what it's all about. Um, but before we get into all the museum stuff, which is going to be amazing, talk about how you first got into fly fishing and we'll take it there. Oh, boy. Um, that goes back to when I was about five years old is when I uh, first became what uh, I would term an angler. Uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, a family that enjoyed fishing. My uh, Specifically, my grandmother and grandfather. Uh, my grandmother in particular would take me out to Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And I can remember uh, at a very young age getting out on those boats, the party boats, of course, uh, getting out and fishing off the side. And I can remember I was always very uh, perturbed that they wouldn't give me a rod and reel. So at that age, of course, they would give me just a hand line. Mm-hmm. And I think that fueled my desire to... Uh, to start collect, to start using and collecting rods and reels. Yeah. From that time, I'd spend a lot of uh, a lot of my youth up in the Adirondacks, uh, and of course, there's plenty of opportunities to uh, to do some some tremendous fishing there. That progressed all the way through my teenage years. In my early 20s, I dabbled a little bit in bass fishing tournaments here in the Northeast, um, and uh, started really focusing in a little bit later on. Uh, some of the saltwater uh, fish, blues and stripers off the Cape, of course, is a, an all-time favorite, uh, especially with a fly rod. It's, it's a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, they're, they're very willing participants, and there's nothing better than, uh, than seeing those, those big blues and stripers come up and grab a fly. It's great stuff. Wow. Okay, there you go. So, so that's it. So you've been doing this your whole life, and, uh, and talk about the uh, museum. I'm not sure your whole history there. How do you become – and you are the curator. Is that your title there? It is, yes. I, I just started with the museum about the first of the year. Uh, prior to that, I spent a number of years as an appraiser with Lang's Tackle Auction. Uh, they are the world's largest fishing tackle auction house, and um, I would uh, work as uh, uh, an appraiser, so I would do descriptions for the rods and reels that uh, people would consign to the auction. Prior to that, I was president of the Old Reel Collectors Association, uh, served as a director for a number of years with that organization, and all of those, of course, are uh, centered on preserving the history of, uh, of fishing uh, through collecting artifacts, preserving them, educating people about what they are. Uh, there's a number of things uh, from our angling past that uh, if no one took the time to explain what they were uh, to people that, uh, that aren't anglers or even some anglers would not know what those things were. And unfortunately, they would just discard them. And it's my hope to preserve as much of these as many of these artifacts as we possibly can. I was just thinking about that, like why, you know, if somebody's listening now, they're not quite sure about, you know, a history episode, like why would they want to do it? And it sounds like you just said it. Why, why would they want to listen to this? That's because, what would you say to your answer again to that? Somebody says, why should I listen to the next hour of a history on fly fishing episode? What would your answer be? I think for the most part, it's, it's very interesting to know that most of the innovations from the 1800s in America uh, are still very, uh, very much evident in the tackle that we use today. So a lot of the designs, a lot of the the features and functionality uh, that these people put uh, put effort into inventing back in the 1850s, 1860s, is still in use today. A prime example of that would be, uh, and everyone, of course, uh, every angler, fly angler in particular, is familiar with the House of Hardy. Hardy's mm-hmm. perfect reel was introduced in the 1890s. Now, after several permutations, that reel is still available today. That's remarkable. Um, so it, there's just a tremendous amount of history 
a tremendous amount of uh, ingenuity that's, uh, while everyone tries to reinvent the wheel, um, it's, it's great to know that a lot of these things were introduced uh, more than 100 years ago. Cool. And, and I think that's where we're going to focus today is dig into some of those uh, U.S.-based inventions and things like that. Uh, but before we get there, let's dig into, before we just focus on the U.S., let's take it, and we've had a few episodes on this where we've talked about uh, some history and people and going back, but we haven't had anybody quite like yourself on to dig into this. So, so maybe take us back wherever you want to go back as far back on the fly fishing history. Start there and let's do a quick little uh, kind of a summary of the world, the history in the world, and then we'll take it to the U.S. Oh, certainly. I think that's a good, uh, a good place to start. So the first actual reference in, uh, in literature dates back to about 200 A.D., uh, and it was a book uh, by a gentleman named Alien. Uh, he put together a 17-book series on uh, the natural wonders of the world, I guess. And uh, in one of his volumes, uh, he talked about fishing that he witnessed in Macedonia. And uh, he was quoted as saying that they fasten red crimson wool on a hook, fix it uh, onto a wood, uh, a wool rather, two feathers. Uh, so that's very likely the first reference of fly fishing in literature. That's hmm. 200 AD. <laughs> uh, jumping forward quite a bit, uh, I think the next uh, interesting reference would be about uh, the year 1210. Uh, there was a German author that talked about uh, one of the kinsmen of King Arthur. He was catching trout with a feathered hook. And German literature talks about, uh, in various uh, publications, about fly fishing with feathered hooks uh, throughout the 1600s. Uh, going back to 1496 is about the time that we see a book, uh, The Trees to Fishing with an Angle, and that was by a nun, uh, Juliana Berners. Uh, she was very uh, adamant about raising angling to a form of sport as opposed to hunting. So it was a uh, widely accepted that uh, angling, of course, was something that could be practiced, not necessarily just to put food on your table. And then in uh, 1653, there was a book that was printed from Isaac Walton, and it's The Complete Angler. And it's interesting to know that that book is the third most reprinted book in the English language, wow. only behind the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. That's amazing. Go back to that, what you just said. Sure. Say that again. <laughs> so the work of Isaac Walton, and it was called The Complete Angler, is the third most reprinted book in the English language behind only the Bible and the works of William Shakespeare. That's staggering. I mean, how is that? That just seems like an amazing thing. And it's not, well, keep going because I want to swing back to that book. Well, certainly. Now, what's interesting, though, is that uh, Isaac Walton wasn't necessarily uh, strictly a fly fisherman. He was an angler. Um, mostly uh, people would point out that he was a bait fisherman, but he did start talking about that sport again and put that in, in the perspective of angling as a, as a pleasurable pastime or, or pleasurable activity as opposed to simply using it for hunting and to put meat on your table. Yeah. Uh, some of the other notable points in history for fly fishing Back in the late 1700s to early 1800s, that's when you start seeing lines that were used for angling start to develop using a silkworm gut, uh, started to replace uh, interwound horsehair lines. 
Uh, they would use that silkworm for the leader, and that, of course, is what attaches your fly to your fishing line. Um, and they started using that uh, in combination uh, with the reel. So that's about the time that the quote-unquote winch or fishing reel starts gaining uh, popularity. Uh, prior to that, of course, you would simply tie a line to the end of your switch and either dab your artificial fly or bait or what have you uh, at the end of your pole. Uh, the winch, of course, was used to take up that line and, and more or less to store it, but that's about the time that those started to gain popularity. One of the first references to fishing in the New World uh, here in the Americas is around 1766. There was an Englishman named Joseph Banks that talks about uh, uh, the fish uh, biting very well at the artificial, uh, and, and he talked about it, uh, he said it was very successful if it had gold in it. So he was talking about fly fishing in, in the Americas, and that's about the first reference of that. The first successful, I'll call it retailer, or widespread retailer of tackle here in the United States goes back to the year 1776. Uh, there was a fishing tackle retailer and a maker of tackle named Edward Pohl from Philadelphia. Uh, and we're uh, aware of numerous uh, broadsides that he, uh, that he printed advertising his wares. Of course, a lot of the tackle at that time was imported from the UK. Uh, it wasn't until the early 1800s to mid-1800s that American tackle makers started getting into the manufacture and uh, invention of a lot of things that, as I mentioned prior, are still influential today. Gotcha. That's cool. And that's where I want to take it. I think um, I will note uh, Jen Ripple was on in a past episode, and we talked about the uh, women in fly fishing, kind of some history there. And she she highlighted that book you mentioned, the um, – Oh, what was it? Gosh, that's amazing. Fourteen ninety six, right? Yeah, the trees of fishing with an angle. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. So she highlighted that book, and then we've uh, had some. You know, we've talked a little bit about this over time, but you're kind of making this is you know this is our focus today. We're going to be really digging into all this before we get into some of the eighteen hundreds and some of those products and inventions uh, in the U.S. Uh, let's go to the museum. It sounds like you're fairly new to it, but are you pretty familiar with the uh, American uh, or the museum there? I am. I've been here numerous times before joining the staff. Um, of course, it was started in 1968 by a group of uh, enthusiastic uh, anglers and collectors. And in fact, I was fortunate enough to uh, have recently photographed the first artifact that was accessioned into the collection here at the museum. It's a uh, B.F. Meek and Sons number 44 model trout reel, German silver trout reel, uh, which is a great little piece circa 1900, 1903, uh, but it was, the, it was the first item accessioned into the museum's holdings. It's a neat little piece. Wow. So, yeah, you were there at the beginning, it sounds like, when that thing got going. No, no I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there <laughs> at the beginning, but, but I was able to view that reel and, as I said, photograph it recently. So oh, gotcha. I think it's kind of neat that it was the first piece in the museum, which yeah. has right now just an amazing uh, collection of, uh, of fishing artifacts, fly fishing artifacts, from all over the world. Uh, this place is just, uh, it's just amazing. And yeah. I have to say that from an early time when I was here visiting, oh, I first visited the museum at the old location here in Manchester, which was actually just up the road. Uh, and I was enthralled at, at seeing all of the things that they had on exhibit and, and learning about them. The new facility that they built, I believe it was circa 2005. Uh, this building that, I am, uh, that I'm talking to you from today uh, I'm actually talking to you from the fly room. 
Um, the exhibits here are just tremendous. And I, I absolutely encourage anyone that has an interest in fishing uh, to certainly make the trip here sometime. We, uh, we have numerous exhibits on display right now from angling and art. Uh, we have, of course, the fly room. We have a, an amazing library uh, that has just been bolstered by a generous donation of over 400 books that date back to the 1400s. Oh, wow. So in terms in terms of research, there's simply no better place to uh, to do that than than there is here at the museum. Okay, yeah, and we're definitely going to uh, hopefully send some people out there, you know, in person and check it out. If somebody was listening now and they maybe aren't going to get out there anytime soon, um, how would they take advantage of that resource? What would you tell somebody that wanted to learn about the history but they couldn't get there? Absolutely. So I would recommend that they visit the website, which is simply amff.org. Uh, we have a number of online exhibits. People will be able to see that. Certainly, they'll be able to search through our archives. And in particular, if there's a, a topic of interest, we do have uh, a searchable database from the American Museum's Fly Fishing Journal. Uh, so there are a number of articles that are indexed there. So if someone is looking for any particular subject, they can start with a search there. Oh, wow. Yep, and take a look at the publications and, yeah. So if somebody wanted to dig into, say, they were, they wanted to learn more about like the Catskills history, like how that all, what's that all about? How, would that be a way they can kind of dig into the website and learn about that whole history? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. There's, there's again, you could do a search on the journal. Uh, there's a, a broad search from the homepage that they can search and, uh, and see what type of information that they're, uh, that they're likely to find. But as I said, the library here is absolutely immense, uh, and, and world-class. So I, I, uh, I wholly expect that someone that, uh, that takes the time to come here would just be lost and, and just immerse themselves in, in, in the books that we have. And if you're like me, if you're a, if you're a fan of fishing and its history, then uh, you could spend hours and hours and hours here. There you go. That's really cool. So, and the book, so you guys actually have a, a place that you can kind of sit down and, and kind of read through, look through some books. Yes, sir. Yes, we have a, uh, we have a library here that's uh that is accessible, of course. Now, there are some uh, some uh, volumes that are more fragile than others, and we do uh, we do ask that in those circumstances, of course, we have them uh, somewhat restricted. It's not as if someone can uh, just kind of come in and pull one off the shelf and crack open the binding, but gotcha. uh, certainly they are available. They are available for research. Well, tell me this. This is a question I just came to my mind. So, do you have who was the first fly fishing podcast out there? Do you have the answer to that? I don't. I truly don't. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't either. I'm trying to think now who would it be. It'd probably be, you know, like a lot of things. I'm not sure if this is true, but uh, Orvis has been going long, you know, doing this for quite a while. They seem to be, uh, not only were they there back in 1856, right, but they seem to be still leading the way in a lot of things. Do you find uh, there's a lot of uh, Orvis uh, influence in a lot of the stuff in there or some of the stuff? Yes, of course, Orvis was very, uh, very influential. Uh, Charles F. was uh, the inventor of the the ventilated upright narrow spool fly reel in 1874 and the cfo by and large hasn't changed very much either over the last century uh, that uh, that reel design there's a lot of collectors that refer to that as the father of all fly reels hmm. uh, there are reels of course that predate that but um, that was the one that uh, that certainly changed the way that fly fishermen used reels in this country there you go so yeah they had a huge and that's one of the you mentioned one of the topics um 
in the 1800s, uh, some of the inventions. Maybe we could maybe we dig into that a little bit to talk about. And I was kind of thinking when I was getting going, thinking of some people, and I'm sure names are going to pop up as we go here when we talk about the the inventions and things like that. But but go back to wherever you want in the 1800s and talk about some of the top, you know, whatever that is, top 10, top five, a few of those inventions and, you know, and, and the influence today. Oh, certainly. So as I mentioned, the tackle that came to this country from England uh, is really kind of what started uh, all of this. The reels or winches, as they were referred to, were fairly basic in that they were constructed mostly of brass, uh, sometimes uh, uh, silver, nickel silver, and single action. Uh, there were a few multipliers, but nothing that nothing that was smooth running or lightweight. Uh, they were they were predominantly heavy, slow reels, and that was well suited to the tree trunks that they use. And and of <laughs> course, I'm, I'm saying that in jest, but I have to give them credit. It was very amazing when you think about these guys fishing with uh, with a lancewood rod of anywhere from 14 to 16 foot with a reel that probably weighed you know two to three pounds uh, with soaking wet horsehair line that did nothing but add weight to that and to fish with that all day Uh, you needed to be pretty rugged in order to last more than an hour or two with that kind of with that kind of a setup yeah so when those were uh, brought over to this country of course it uh, didn't take long before some of our inventors kind of took notice and decided that they could probably do a little bit better. The first that I can think of is a gentleman named George Schneider, who somewhere around the just before 1820, uh, he was a uh, gentleman from Kentucky that is widely credited with building the first multiplying reel here in the United States. And that's pretty remarkable when you consider the influence that the early Kentucky reel makers had on fishing in general. Their reels were never patented. uh, And I give credit to uh, Benjamin Meek for uh, having made the statement, if somebody thinks that they can do it any better, let them go for it. Uh, Of course, uh, he phrased it a little bit differently, but that was his general take on things. But those multiplying reels using the gearing systems that they had were certainly much more uh, useful for anglers in it. They were much smoother. They operated a little bit better than uh, than some of the others. In fact, the Meek brothers uh, were presented with a reel that wasn't operating all that well. Uh, and the Meeks being involved in watchmaking at the time decided that they could do it a little bit better. They not only fixed the reel and a gentleman was so pleased with the results, he asked them to start to, to make another reel. Uh, word got out pretty quickly and that's when they started off on their reel business. So you can credit George Schneider with uh, with perfecting the multiplying reel, at least in, in this country. There you go. As far as fly reels are concerned, there was a reel that I, I wholly believe influenced the earliest fly reels made in, in this country. In 1848, there was a gentleman named Frederick Skinner who uh, was awarded a design patent for what was called his Archimedean reel. Now, that reel is a little different than your standard fly reel in that it was mounted horizontally on a rod. What I can liken that to is if, you, if you're familiar with, say, a Martin automatic reel that mounts horizontally, not hanging below necessarily, that was the way that that reel was mounted. And it was a small little uh, reel with an iron foot, was made with a brass spool. Some of them were solid spools. Some of them had, and this was new also, perforations. And of course, the perforations were there not necessarily to lighten the reel, although that did help, 
but you needed the ability to dry your fishing lines, otherwise they would rot. That reel, I believe, at least had some influence, although I have no hard and fast evidence, uh, influenced uh, two of the earliest fly reel makers in the U.S. One of them received a patent for his invention, the other never did. Uh, there's still some question as to whether the reels of Morgan James, who was a gunsmith in the Utica, New York area, uh, his reel, and there's very few of them known, uh, was a what they term a pillbox style. I would, in order to help visualize this, imagine a, a large three-inch diameter lifesaver with a handle on it. That's pretty much what that reel was. I did have a slot for the line to come out through the side of the, of the reel, but it was a side-mounted reel that never received a patent, but there again, uh, he was more focused on his gun-making activities. But those reels, we know that they date to the 1850s uh, based on some engravings on, uh, on one of the reels. The one that's most important, though, uh, I think belongs to William Billinghurst. Billinghurst was a Rochester gunsmith. Uh, he was perhaps the, the most talented gunsmith in the country at the time. And while in Rochester, uh, while working on his guns, he developed the first side-mounted uh, fly reel in 1859. That's when it received its patent, and that is widely accepted as the first fly reel patented in the United States. That reel was different in a lot of ways. Uh, and as I mentioned uh, toward the beginning of our, of our talk, a lot of the artifacts that uh, come from this era are not really recognizable as a fishing tool. And I can promise you that if I were to present a Billinghurst reel to a modern day angler, if I were to take the handle away and present that to them and just ask them if they knew what it was, I can guarantee you a, a good 80 to 90% would have no idea that was a fishing reel. It was what they call a birdcage style reel. So again, it was mounted horizontally, but what Billinghurst did uh, by making his reel, instead of having to use gears to quickly take up line, Billinghurst incorporated a larger arbor. And around that arbor were smaller rings that comprised the spool. Now that's significant again, because the horsehair lines of those, of those days and cotton lines had to be dried. When you were finished with a day's fishing, if you didn't dry your line, it wouldn't take very long before it would start to rot. And those lines were very expensive. You certainly didn't want to be wasteful. So the earlier anglers would have to strip the line off of their reels after every fishing trip. Oh, wow. Let them dry, wind them back on the reel, time-consuming process. You needed more apparatus to do that. Uh, so it, with Billinghurst design, because it was an open cage, it was made up of 20 of those individual rings that surrounded that central disc. Because it had such a large arbor, every time you turned the handle on that reel, it would take up several inches of line. The open design of that reel allowed the line to dry while it was still on the reel. You didn't have to take it off. It also afforded the anglers to be able to carry that reel in their pocket. It didn't require a lot of space. Uh, being that it was mounted on its side, it would fit in your vest pocket. And one of the coolest things, Billinghurst incorporated a folding handle on his reel. So it was this post that had a little arch off of the base, and that would fit into a slot in that spool, and it would fold down. So it would fit, it would make for a very low profile reel, and that would fit in your pocket. The Billinghurst reels lasted uh, well beyond 1900. Billinghurst passed in 1880. 
because of the the 21 uh, year reign that he had, uh, his patent uh, had expired in 1873. He applied for an extension, was granted that extension for seven years. After he died in 1880, uh, there was an auction and uh, all his equipment was sold. Another Rochester tackle maker, James Ratcliffe, took up the manufacturing of those reels and produced them for another 20 plus years before they finally kind of faded out. Diddy Fly is established in 1928 as the oldest family-run fly shop in the country. And you've heard all the history. You know this is a great episode because we got Deddy on here, and we even talked about Deddy in this one with Jim. So it's pretty awesome to uh, be doing one of these historic episodes and also have a historic uh, fly shop on as a sponsor. I've been hearing about Deddy for a long time, and they've been kicking out some great stuff uh, longer than I've been alive. So it's uh, pretty amazing. Actually, longer than anybody I know uh, has been alive. So um, located in Livingston Manor, Deddy is your welcoming place on the creek or online. Their fly shop has a large selection of flies, materials, gear, lifestyle items, tons of stuff, just like any fly shop it's loaded. Plus, they've got the custom flies nailed. This is the place to go if you want to get some of those really super clean exact from the people that have been doing it for a long, long time. Great stuff. I'm super happy to have Deddy on. For more information, visit DeddyFlies at wetflyswing.com slash Deddy. Or you can give them a call right now. Just check them out. 845-439-1166. Wetflyswing.com slash Deddy. D-E-T-T-E. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to check out Deddy. Okay, let's get back to the show. So talk about that. You, you mentioned a couple times the side mount. What was the, you know, why did we eventually go to the mount below? Why the side mount and then why now, you know, obviously the reel is down under the rod. So the side mount reel, uh, as I said, it, it was a much lighter weight reel. That was kind of a, kind of a big deal for those guys. Again, when you're fishing some of the, the earlier rods. Uh, that were that were a little heavy, but the lightweight and ability to dry the lines was really kind of a big deal. Uh, that, as I said, changed when Charles Orvis introduced his reel in 1874. Now, the first Orvis reel uh, was heavily perforated, but it was a very narrow spool. That also allowed the rapid retrieval of line without the need for gearing. So you didn't have to have any complex gearing that needed lubrication and that sort of thing. The first reels produced by Orvis lacked a click. Uh, they had a spindle that just uh, protruded through the backside of the reel, but it was an upright reel. Uh, and it's kind of neat. It came in a walnut box. The handle would unscrew, and there was a provision in that box to place the handle. You could close the lid and easily store it wherever you wished. Orvis, in his patent description in 1874, initially talked about producing the reel in hard rubber. That, of course, would have been an incredibly lightweight reel, but to date, I don't believe anyone has found an Orvis reel, an original Orvis reel made of hard rubber. And if it had been made, it probably would have had a tough time surviving all these years. Another angler from upstate New York, Dr. Alonzo Fowler, was a dentist. He used his molding experience to produce a hard rubber side-mounted fly reel in 1872. That was known as the Fowler Gem. That was very popular among tournament fly casters. They would compete for distance casting and accuracy, but because that reel was so lightweight uh, and very, very fragile, again, as a result, there aren't too many of them out there today because 
if you drop that from any height, uh, it's pretty much gone. And that was something that was pointed out by a number of anglers during the 1880s. Uh, they all talked about, uh, hey, listen, great idea, but just a little too fragile for us. Right. Okay. So on the reel, you're talking about, you know, today, what, what was that transition like when you had, so you had the side mount, which was a lighter reel and that was fine. And then eventually they went to the reel. You said, I think on top and then down, now it's on the bottom. Talk about that evolution there. Why the side versus the bottom versus the top? Or am I missing something there? No, it, it was really just a, a matter of personal preference. So I suspect that the side mounted reel uh, fell out of favor after the introduction of the Orbis reel in 1874. Uh, there was another reel that closely followed on its heels in 1877 uh, that was also an upright, a reel that would hang below the rod. Uh, certainly there were anglers that preferred to use a reel on top, some below. So that was a matter of preference, but it's like anything else. You have, I can draw an analogy to like a, a search engine. When the Orbis reel came out, it was more or less the Google of its day. Certainly, there's other search engines out there, but everybody knows Google. Uh, and I think that uh, that style of reel uh, certainly uh, did an awful lot to influence reel makers moving forward. Yeah, that was it. And that reel was underneath. It was basically people would have it on their rod below hanging down like today. That's correct. That's correct. Gotcha. And that, that would certainly help balance out your outfit. Balance, yeah. The side-mounted reel, as I said, that, that lasted for a number of makers, uh, mostly in, in uh, the Northeast. Uh, Fowler with his uh, with his hard rubber reel, and uh, of course Ratcliffe produced those up until 1900. The last side mounted reel patented in the United States was 1934. Some 30 years after those reels fell out of favor, uh, there was a, a drugstore uh, operator in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, named Elmer Sellers. Why Sellers decided to reintroduce that side mounted reel uh, is a bit of a mystery. Um, I'm afraid he wasn't very successful. Uh, it uh, he reached out to the folks at uh, the Shakespeare Tackle Company, uh, which was one of the biggest in the country at that time, uh, and tried to pitch his idea there. And uh, it didn't it didn't get very far, I'm afraid. So um, while they were relatively inexpensive to manufacture, again, they, they'd fallen out of favor. But the only side-mounted reel that lasted for any length of time was the automatic reel. Automatic reels, of course, were introduced back in the 1800s also in America. Um, that started in 1880. There's, of course, some discussion. There has been uh, some uh, evidence to show that an automatic reel was in use in England prior to that. But once again, the popularity of those reels and, and the, the manufacturer uh, starting in, in the 1800s in this country kind of took off and, and exceeded the expectations, I think, of, uh, of a lot of anglers. That lasted all the way up until fairly recently, I think the Martin Company was still making reels. Of course, the company had been bought and sold numerous times over the last decade or so, and uh, I'm not I'm not even certain that they're making those anymore. Right, right. So, and yeah, and there's a ton of like on the reel. Obviously, the reel is a critical piece in the history, and then you have the rod, of course. Uh, what other what other people or inventions, you know, U.S. based in that history are we missing here that you'd add to this uh, this discussion? Well, of course, you can't talk about fly fishing without talking about rods. And um, there's uh, a lot of a lot of talk now again about bamboo rods, and uh, they're they're gaining popularity once again. Uh, for a time, graphite oh, fiberglass, of course, was introduced, and uh, that gave way to graphite rods. And of course, there's been a resurgence in the interest of bamboo rods. The beginnings of those rods uh, go back again to the 1800s. 
there were two makers uh, in particular, Samuel Philippe and Charles Murphy. Uh, what we do know emphatically is that Charles Murphy was the first U.S. maker to produce a split bamboo rod the entire length, from the butts to the tips. Samuel Philippe and his son Salon were producing split bamboo rods, four strips predominantly, but they used an ash for the butt section. And those go back to uh, the 1840s, 1870s. Um, the, uh, before the 1980s, uh, predominantly it was Calcutta cane from India, uh, after the, about the mid-1890s, Calcutta was no longer available, so makers started migrating over to Tonkin cane, which was obtained from China. Uh, but Philippe and Charles Murphy were credited, I think, with uh, with the first split bamboo rods. Uh, even before that, as I said, a lot of the tack was very heavy. Uh, there were makers like Conroy. Uh, one of the oldest rods here at the museum was made by a gentleman uh, named Benjamin Welch who made three rods for uh, Senator Daniel Webster uh, in 1847. Uh, and we have one of those rods here at the museum. Uh, and then of course, probably the most popular, and there's quite a few anglers that, uh, even if you don't know a lot about fly fishing history or are familiar with the names, H.L. Uh, Leonard, of course, starting in about 1877, mm. uh, was probably the first to start mass producing split bamboo rods. Uh, he had the machinery and the capability to do that uh, and uh, certainly his, his influence was, was tremendous. Spawned a great number of rod builders that had worked at the Leonard shop. Uh, and I think, I, I dare say there's a lot of modern day rod makers that owe quite a bit to the techniques that, uh, that were originated back there in the 1870s. Right, right. So if you go back, we're talking rods here in the 1800s. What was it like before this period? What were they using? What was the fly rod like? The earliest, of course, was, was simply that. It, it could have been just a regular bamboo pole or cane uh, back in the earliest times. So there was nothing nothing to it more than just a stick, if you will. Uh, they started using ferrules and sections to break them down a little bit uh, to help not only with construction but ease of portability. Hauling around a 16-foot rod wasn't, uh, wasn't the easiest thing to do, especially when you consider the, the uh, environment. Uh, there were no paved parking lots. There were no uh, boat launches. This was uh, this was nature, <laughs> nature yeah. in its raw form. Uh, so you had to kind of snake that thing through, which is why early on they didn't necessarily make a cast as much as kind of just present that fly at the end of their leader, which was secured to the end of, of a big stick. It uh, started to develop again late 1700s, early 1800s into uh, some of the ash rods. Uh, that started using guides and tip tops. And again, with the introduction of the winch or the reel, now you have a place to store your line. You could begin stripping your line off and using the rod to actually cast your line or your fly or your bait to the fish. Okay. So we've touched a little bit on rods and reels here. What else, when you look at, again, some of those inventions or, you know, or maybe we could just take it to the the museum, what are some of the popular things that people are, let, let's start there. When people come to the museum, what are the most popular attractions there? Well, certainly rods and reels are always attractive to the visitors at the museum, but uh, fly fishermen, I think, uh, have a tendency to migrate to a lot of the flies and the fly patterns uh, that were produced, uh, again, Back around the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, there were uh, people like uh, Theodore Gordon who were very instrumental in fly fishing uh, with his, his patterns. And uh, the study of entomology and studying what those trout were eating 
and doing their best to try to imitate those insects uh, influenced the fly tires. A lot of it was regional. Uh, there were certainly makers or, or fly tires from the Catskill region. Uh, there were tires in the Adirondacks um, from some of the other cities. Uh, so the fly room here at the museum is a, a big draw. Uh, there's a number of fly tires that uh, we have. Uh, so we have some wonderful representations of them. So people like to come and study that as well. Yeah, so the flies are a big, uh, definitely a big draw. So talk about some of the other uh, inventions or, or people, some names that we've left out here. Who else should we be thinking about on when we think about U.S. history? Holy smokes, boy, there's there's entire volumes that you could write about a lot of these people. So <laughs> And volumes of, the, like you said, the products. I mean, it seems interesting. I guess it makes sense. A lot of stuff was developed in the U.S., but also, I mean, you always think going back to, you know, England and all the history there, but it sounds like, you know, we had just as much many products uh, invented here as over there. Well, I would dare say we had more products invented here in the States than uh, they did in the UK. Um, certainly, there's a number of manufacturers in the UK, in particular, Hardy. Uh, Hardy, again, started in 1890s uh, with their Hardy Perfect fly reel. And that reel, although it's gone through a number of changes over the years, it's still in production today. Uh, and as I said before, that, that's, that's just remarkable. Nobody else can boast that kind of history. Mm-hmm. The reels started out, they looked a little different. They were uh, brass. Um, they had a uh, what they called an open race of ball bearings. Uh, very smooth operating reels, which is one of the reasons that they were so popular. Uh, but those early reels, if you took that spool apart and weren't careful, all those little ball bearings would just come flying out of the reel. Oh, no. <laughs> it took them a couple of years to close that up a little bit. Like, like working on the old bike back when you were a kid, right? You take off the wheel and you, you, <laughs> you end up screwing it up pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of parts that would fall away, and those little those little ball bearings, especially if you were to do that over the stream, you're simply never going to find them again. No. Nope. So they made some refinements to their reel, and that went through some uh, some design changes with uh, uh, mostly centered around the check system or the the drag system, if you will, and that was predominantly just a simple click and pull mechanism. And there are some disc reels that Hardy produces today, but They've pretty much stayed with a tried-and-true method of using a click paw. It does have a little tension adjustment on it so that you can uh, uh, certainly adjust for whatever whatever size leader you're using. Uh, the modern technology today, the products that they, they use to produce these super, super thin leaders, uh, you can actually catch some very large fish on very light lines because of the technology built into the drag systems on these, on these modern-day reels. A lot of that, again, they owe a lot to uh, the original designs of uh, the folks back in the 18 and 1900s. There you go. You know, I'm just thinking here, so we've been digging into some products, some inventions, some people. I'm not sure, do you know much about, do you have a history on like fly shops in the U.S.? Can you talk about that a little bit? The fly shops going back to the 1800s were centered in most of the major cities. So in New York, you had... Uh, the earliest were the houses of Conroy. Uh, they started in, uh, again, early 1800s. It went through the family uh, all the way up into the late 1800s. There were other places in Philadelphia. A.B. Shipley uh, was a very famous tackle house. Uh, you had places like um, Reed in Boston and any number of, uh, of big houses. Some of the major retailers, of course, were Orvis. Now, Orvis was somewhat unique in that they not only retailed their products, Orvis was a master retailer. 
but they also produce their own equipment. Some of the other famous uh, retailers like Abercrombie and Fitch imported right. or had had other people making their equipment for them, which is fine. They use some of the finest makers uh, in the country. In fact, today, one of the most sought after fly reels uh, was made by uh, a company started by the name of Talbot. And Talbot made what's, uh, what they were retailed at the Abercrombie and Fitch stores as a Ben-Hur fly reel. And it was an expensive little reel, but it's uh, it's an incredibly high quality piece that demands a, a big price today. Uh, some of the fly reels by uh, William Mills, again, they uh, utilized a lot of different makers, Vom Hoffs and Leonard and, and the like to sell a lot of their products. So the William Mills tackle shop in New York City marketed uh, for a while. They were the sole agents of the H.L. Leonard Rod Company. So if you wanted a Leonard Rod, you had to go through them. Oh, I see. So there's a lot of, there's fly shops, you know, different types. Like you said, the first one might have been, when do you think, do you have any idea? Could you guesstimate when you think the first fly shop was opened? Well, again, I'd give credit to the very first one, to Edward Pohl of Philadelphia in 1776. Uh, he was making, and I, I guess I'd have to specify that he wasn't necessarily making rods and reels. At the time, it was a big deal to have needles or hooks uh, manufactured to specific. So people wanted to use them either for bait fishing or for fly fishing. So being able to make your own, uh, for them to be able to make their own hooks was kind of a big selling point. And then of course they would sell a lot of imported tackle from, from England. The U S makers didn't really start getting into their own until the late, the late 1800s. And that's when, that's when you started to see a lot of competition. And it's also important to note that advertising back then was very limited, especially as it related to the outdoors. Fishing was not an everyday man's sport. All right. So not only were there not a lot of publications, uh, there, there was no, no such thing as a Bass Pro Shop catalog back then. Uh, it wasn't until uh, publications like the Spirit of the Times would start mentioning uh, fishing and that sort of thing. The outdoor writers, I think, were very influential in uh, bringing the sport to the attention of the masses. In fact, there's one in particular um, – I don't know if you're familiar with William H. Murray. Uh, he was known as Adirondack Murray. He wrote a series of articles that were put together and published as a book in 1869. And his big push was to get people out of the cities and introduce them to the, the wonderful area of upstate New York, uh, known as the Adirondack Mountains. And he went so far as to write guides about how to how to get to train schedules and find guides mm -hmm. and find... Well, the people in the cities were reading these things and hearing about uh, these adventures where you could get out in a boat, wet your line, fill the yep. boat up with beautiful rainbow trout in about 30 minutes and go home and have a <laughs> wonderful dinner. Well, he never mentioned anything about the black flies and the uh, brambles and, you know, the swampy areas and, the, and, and all of that. Nice. So, um, yeah, he, he did quite a bit to, to bring a lot of people to the Adirondacks, but it was a little, they were a little disappointed when they, when they saw what it was actually like and that he actually had to work for those things, so. That's pretty funny. So tell me this. I'm, I'm interested in this because uh, Deddy Flies. So they're, I'm not sure. Do you know a little bit of the history? And I, and I want to dig into this just in case we don't get them on the show because they've been around for quite a while, right? Do you know a little bit about that history? Yeah, Walt and Winnie Deddy. Yeah, they're uh, Catskill area fly tires that uh, uh, just they've, they've done a tremendous amount for that region. Uh, and they've been tying for, for decades um, they studied under some of the uh, some of the, the other earlier fly tires, but uh, certainly they were very prolific, uh, certainly very well known. And again, they were 
uh, I believe, started mostly by word of mouth, uh, which, of course, uh, spread far and wide. So they became uh, sought after when it came to getting the right patterns for the waters that people were fishing in the Catskills. There you go. Yeah. And they're, they're uh, I think, 94. Let's see. What is it now? Uh, 2022. So I think they've been going for 94 years. They're actually uh, presenting this episode today. So I wanted to dig into that just because I'm curious about that. And, and who is the current? Um, it's Joe, right? Is Joe's kind of down there? He's the, um, the son of, of the, uh, I'm not sure. What, what's his history there? I'm not really sure what his history is, uh, truth be told. So I don't want to. I don't want to make anything up. <laughs> okay. Good. 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 Well, I'll leave it to Joe. I'll leave it to the when I get the Daddy uh, crew on here. And this is going to be fun because this is part of the deal. You know, it's it's we have you on, but we can expand out now and do some more of our own research and get other people on to keep this going. So we've talked a lot about rods and reels today, and a little bit uh, on fly shops. What other any other products, any other inventions out there we want to highlight before we get out of here that were really um, you know influential or just interesting? Um, well, there's some interesting things. I mean, people take uh, the fly fishing vest for granted. That was an invention of Lee Wolf. Um, and you were talking before about the first podcast. I think that uh, it's important to note the contributions of Lee Wolf to the sport of, of fishing uh, and, and fly fishing uh, in, in general. Of course, he and, uh, and his wife, uh, Joan Wolf, both were just amazing, amazing people uh, and so uh, influential throughout their time. Um, Lee, of course, invented the fishing vest for all intents and purposes, patented that. Uh, so that's kind of a neat invention. Um, uh, boy, there's just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out. There's just so yeah, many yeah. things that... Uh, well, take us into the, like, let's go to the uh, the museum. So we're coming there, you know, it's, uh, I'm showing up right now on your doorstep. I'm not sure what time you guys open up or your hours, but we're there. We're walking to the front door. What are we seeing? Well, you're greeted by a display of flies from Mary Marvis, uh, Mary Orvis, yeah. who wrote a book in 1892, I believe. Uh, she dissected the patterns, named the patterns, uh, and, and helped people uh, that wanted to tie their own flies or at least be able to recognize by name what they were looking for and what they wanted to use. From there, you're going to go into the, the main gallery. Currently, we have an exhibit uh, of early angling art. And again, I point to the fact that there were very few publications. Uh, literacy wasn't exactly high on a list of priorities for people back then. So the medium of uh, oils and, and art displayed what it was like for anglers at the time. And we have a tremendous uh, timeline of early American paintings on display. The fly room, of course, is uh, the other permanent exhibit that we have here. Uh, there's any number of fly tires on display. Uh, we also currently have the desk, the fly time desk of Lefty Cray. Oh, wow. Lefty uh, recently left us, but uh, left behind a legacy of, uh, of fly casting. Some of his uh, 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 deceiver patterns flies were uh, are still used today. Uh, Lefty was, uh, he was just a tremendous guy, just a tremendous, tremendous guy. And then, of course, we mentioned earlier the library that's upstairs. We have a new reel exhibit that's going to be installed shortly. Uh, we actually have a very interesting exhibit about cigarette cards that featured uh, a lot of the game fish in the United States. Hmm. Um, so there's just there's a lot to see. We also have an exhibit coming up uh, this year that we're putting together detailing the uh, angling adventures of both Lee and Joan Wolf. Lee and Joan Wolf. Okay, cool. And I'll put a link out. We had Joan Wolf on the podcast. I think it was episode 100, which is pretty amazing. I, was, I always try to celebrate 
you know, when we hit our, uh, you know, every hundred episodes. And I think Joan was a hundred. Um, I think 200 was lefty. Uh, we didn't have lefty, but we had somebody talk about him. So we're, we're coming up to 300. If we were going to do a 300, uh, episode celebration, who should we, who would you highlight, uh, either have on this live now or, or who would you bring that somebody could tell a history of a person? What would that person be? Oh boy, that's a great question. I'd have to give that some serious thought. I yeah. Have to, yeah. Well, give us some thought because I want to do this right because it's hard when I think of, okay, Joan Wolf and Lefty Cray. Um, I guess I almost might, yeah, you, you probably say Lee Wolf, but I, it'd be hard to put two uh, wolves in there. I'd, I'd have to think of a of another person, I think. But yeah, maybe I'll check back with you that on, on that, Jim. We'll, we'll get somebody for our 300th. And you're, you're going to be... Gosh, I want to say you're uh, pretty close to 298, I think. So we're, we're, we're only a couple episodes away. So we got only a couple of weeks here. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, I'll give that some thought and certainly we'll, get, we'll circle back to that. Oh, good. Good. And maybe when we do it, this would be a fun thing we could do. Maybe we can um, get a person and then somehow tie it into the history and we could dig into some of that. Um, but yeah, I guess the first thing we got to find somebody to talk about the person. But uh, talk about this cigarette card thing. So obviously I'm not sure, you know, cigarettes are not the best thing to talk about, but I, there's a good history there. What, what, is the, what are these cards? So, of course, smoking was much more popular back in the day, but it was a series of cards, and of course, more or less like a, like a baseball card or a football card, uh, and it was to, uh, listing a series of game fish in the United States with an illustration of the fish and a description on the back of the card telling them all about it, its habitat, locations, um, fishing opportunities, and that sort of thing. But the artwork is just tremendous. I mean, I, I love the graphics from, from these early artists. I think, the, I think they're, just, uh, they're just great. They're just great. So, yeah, the cigarette cards were a promotion, of course, to try to sell sell more product to people. Uh, and anglers, of course, were notorious smokers. So Yeah, they were. That's right. They love their tobacco. They, yeah. Uh, they still do. They, <laughs> I think they still do. <laughs> uh, so, okay. And Lefty, that desk is interesting, too, because, uh, you know, I remember when Lefty passed and you heard he had a lot of stuff, obviously. And I heard a lot of that kind of went up for a random, you know, kind of disappeared. I'm curious, how do you guys, how do you manage to get your hands on that desk? And then how, you know what I mean? How do you get your hands on this stuff? Well, I, I can't speak to the details of the acquisition. Um, that's before I started here at the museum, but I would dare say that, of course, these things came directly from the family. Uh, and I would, uh, I would like to think that Lefty would be, would be proud of the fact that his, uh, his desk and, and things are here at the museum for, uh, for people to see and enjoy. Uh, and that's that's the one thing I have to say about uh, not only anglers but the manufacturers. Even though we talked about these things from the 1800s and 1900s, if the manufacturers of these thought that people were strictly going to admire them, leave them up on the shelf to collect dust, I think they'd be a little disappointed. I think that the people that put their blood, sweat, and tears into manufacturing and making these things, they'd be very pleased to know that people are still enjoying them, still admire them, and to some extent still using that equipment. Right. Yeah. Still using it. And so that's the difference between, we had this conversation on a, another episode. We did We talked a little bit about classic gear, similar to this, uh, but we talked about the difference between vintage gear and classic gear. And I think that the distinction is, is that classic gear, you know, is um, you're actually still kind of using it a lot of times, right? It, what is vintage? So describe the vintage. What makes it vintage? In my estimation, antique is a hundred years or more. Uh, vintage simply refers to an era uh, as it relates to uh, to fishing tackle, I think anything that's more than 100 years old is certainly certainly earned that moniker antique. Up until then, there's uh, there's classic tackle uh, that, in my estimation, would be anything from say the 19 after the Second World War 
okay. uh, to, uh, to up about the year 2000 even. It's, it's hard for me, and, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but boy, it's awful hard for me to imagine anything being uh, from the 1980s or 1990s as vintage. Yeah, that's not vintage. So vintage is, it seems like vintage to me would be, yeah, more like 50 years old. Well, I guess that's, um, yeah, I don't know. Is that what it, what it, remind us again, what is the vintage designation? Well, vintage designation is simply referring to an era. So you could say a 1950s vintage or a 1970s oh, vintage. Oh, gotcha. Antique, as I said, is, is more than a, is 100 years or more. Okay. But you wouldn't say 1970s vintage, or would you? No, not necessarily. I, I refer to those things probably in the 50-year to 100-year range is, is vintage uh, for me anyway. The CRC system from Trestle provides secure, convenient storage for your fully rigged fly rod with unsurpassed gear protection. Every CRC system comes with their secure mounting clamps, so this stuff is really easy to get going. It comes with a little pack. In fact, I got it right here. Uh, let's see. I got a little little package right here. I'm going to dig up. Here, all that stuff. It's got your normal, your normal goods, and it's got some bolts, and this thing is super easy to put on. Um, and it's, uh, and it telescopes out to, uh, encompass a fully rigged rod up to, I believe I want to say 10 feet. I might be off. It might be 10 and a half, but it's definitely a full length rod. And it also telescopes down into shorter carry modes. So you can actually carry this thing if you wanted to. It, it's heavy duty. You can literally whack somebody. Um, I mean, this is definitely a weapon. If you could, uh, <laughs> if you could pick it up, this thing is awesome. So. Making it easier, faster, and cleaner to get on the water is so great, and that's what Trestle does well. They've also got some other good stuff going. Check them out right now. Not only the rod carrier, but they got a really cool fly box. They've just uh, they got the engineering uh, backed. The engineering is the key, and uh, and they got some good stuff going there. So I don't want to uh, open up too many surprises now, but they got some good stuff covered. Uh, too much, too much good stuff here. So I want you to head over to Trestle to check one out for yourself. You can go right now to Trestle. That's uh, wetflyswing.com slash T-R-X-S-T-L-E to check them out right now. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to check out what John and the crew have going right now. Okay, back to the show. And what about the stuff at the museum? What is, maybe let's talk about this first, what's at the museum and then just in the world, what is the most valuable piece of gear out there or, or piece of anything like what what is the fly fishing thing that is just like this thing is a ridiculous amount of money if you had to buy it on an auction hmm well there was an advertisement back in the 1800s for a gold presentation rod and reel and that was advertised as having been at the world's fair in chicago and i believe 1893 it was sent around to various retailers to be displayed in the front window of the shop all the shop owner had to do was contact Abby and Embry, ask for this thing to be sent to them so that they could display it. Uh, that, from my understanding, there were six of them made. Uh, I don't know. I believe one of them is known uh, in the UK, and there's possibly one here in the States, but should someone find one of those examples, uh, I think that would that would certainly be a record setter. That would be. And that might. what might that run, do you think that might be worth? That's a – and, boy, I – Who knows? Yeah, I, I'd be absolutely lying if I told you I could narrow it down to to a dollar amount because right. that's an absolute, absolute wild card. Because not only are you factoring in that it's gold, uh, but it has a, a storied history, and who knows what that would bring. But gotcha. you know, aside from that, there's 
Uh, it, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some That's people right. place value on some of the literature. Uh, there are certainly angling books that have sold in the uh, close to close to a hundred thousand dollars. Oh wow! There's been fishing tackle that's sold for for over a hundred thousand um, dollars. And then in the, in the world of fly fishing, uh, there are people that would value rods over reels. Some people that would value flies over uh, rods. That again is all. It's all a matter of personal preference. Exactly. And, uh, no, and that's a great take on it because yeah, it's all, you know, somebody's, what is the right? Somebody's uh, garbage is another person's treasure, whatever that saying is. Absolutely. Yep. One man's junk is another man's treasure. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so tell me this, this is another good one because, uh, I always think about this sometimes when we're doing stuff and, you know, the history stuff, like, you know, how do you keep all of what you do and everything from being like boring, right? I think some people maybe think like, oh, this is some old history, some old white guy, you know, talking about, you know, not not you, but, you know, like these old white guys were talking about and stuff. But how do you do it in your job? I mean, is that part of your thing? You're always thinking like, how do you keep it from being boring or what, what do you guys do there? Well, for me, <laughs> and I think you can tell by the way I've been rambling on, this is anything but boring for me. I think that I think the history of this stuff is just incredible, and yeah. there's still more more stories to be told. Uh, there's a lot more research that needs to be done. There's a lot of subjects that uh, uh, that we've only scratched the surface, um, and and I I find it all fascinating. And really, it all boils down to the thing that I love most is getting out on the water. And for me, knowing the background and knowing the history behind the sport, I think is just it's really interesting to me. It really is. No, I agree. I think the I'm totally into it, and I think uh, I think the more you get into it, I'm sure the more yeah you just you start learning about it and and kind of gets more interesting as you go. Well, Jim, we're going to take it out here pretty quick, and I like to start this off with a little segment we call uh, Coffee Talk. Uh, this is the way we've been wrapping these things up lately, and I guess let's start there first of all. Uh, you know, to this morning, what do you drink? What do you typically have in the morning? Well, I'll typically have a cup of coffee or two. Um, you do okay, so you are a coffee and yes, I am. And are you all black or are you mixing in? What do you, what do you got going there? Do you mix it up with some stuff? A little bit of half and half, no sugar. No sugar. Uh, and then, of course, in, in the summertime, I, I don't mind an iced coffee from time to time, too. There you go. That's awesome. Okay. And uh, so we got that down. So let's on Coffee Talk, we usually try to dig into something, you know, to help our listeners. And we've been talking about a, history, a lot of history. But you've got um, some experience, right? You mentioned at the start just on uh, stripers and blues and that. Let's just dig into that a little bit and think of a tip. So if somebody out there, we've had a couple of episodes on stripers. Um, talk about that. If you want to give somebody one tip, they're heading out there. Uh, well, let's just go to the blue because we haven't talked about that much. First, describe... Um, just a little bit on that fishing, what that's like, and then give us a tip to help us catch one of those. Well, to give you an idea of what it's like, my one of my first excursions out on the Cape fishing for stripers and blues uh, was uh, I was very fortunate to go with a friend of mine who's very experienced. And I'm going to back up for just a second. If I had to give one piece of advice to anybody that's looking to get into uh, get into the sport, sure, you can certainly grab a rod and reel from your, your local retailer and head out to any pond, lake, and, and stand on the shore and cast out. But if you really want to get the most out of the sport, I strongly recommend at least going with someone that's experienced. Uh, and if you don't have someone that's experienced, get yourself a guide. Uh, my first trip out on the Cape was so memorable because I knew uh, that I was with someone that was experienced, was going to show me the proper techniques, what to do in order to, to have a successful day. He pulled up on this school of fish that was just busting on, on the bait. And that was the only time, only time that I can recall that I knew that all I had to do was put that fly 
on top of those fish and I was going to get bit. And sure enough, no sooner did that thing hit the water, a blue smashed it and the fight was on. It was just incredible. And it was incredible to watch. So my advice would be to get, uh, depending on what type of fishing you enjoy, uh, I don't care if it's trout fishing, saltwater fishing, bass fishing, musky fishing, whatever, spend some time with someone that's done it before uh, and, and learn a little bit. Really, it's no different than collecting. When I first started collecting tackle myself, I was buying everything and anything I found. You find out pretty quickly that you can't do that and sustain it for very long. So I started to focus in a little bit. All collectors go through that. Uh, there's very few people that I know and that started out collecting just one thing in particular. Uh, when they jump into it, they kind of jump into it with both feet. They end up with a lot of things that after after a time, you look at it and go, Man, I'm really not interested in that. I should get rid of that and focus in on, on the this other thing. Right. Kind of the same with fishing. Now, I'm an absolute fishing addict. I'll fish for anything, anywhere. I'm just as happy with a little two-weight uh, fly rod in my hand as uh, as I am with a big stick going after going after big fish in in, uh, in the ocean. So there you go. You do a little bit of everything. Who is the you mentioned the guy? Do you remember um, who that person? Want to give a shout out to that? I'm not sure if, if that was a long time ago or what. Oh yeah, no, it was a friend of mine. His name's Bill Holbein. Uh, Bill is a very special. He's a very special friend of mine that now lives down in the Carolinas. Uh, Bill introduced me not only to that saltwater fishing on the Cape, but he was also instrumental in my learning about a lot of the New York state history as it related to tackle. So I'm, I was born and raised in upstate New York. So for me, it was a natural attraction to those things that were invented around the area where I lived. I thought that was, uh, it, it just really started me off on a tremendous journey. So I owe quite a bit to that man. That's right. And you guys now, obviously you have a lot, there's a lot of history from New York and, you know, the Northeast. Do you find, you know, in the museum, uh, it's, there's stuff spread out throughout the whole country or is it, and do you break it up by, you know, state or area or how does that look? No, we don't, we don't generally break it up by state unless it's telling a story in the exhibit. Um, so the tires that we have, of course, there's just as many influential tires in the Western part of the United States as there are in the East. Uh, there are patterns that are effective in the Southern part of the U S that don't necessarily work well in the Northeast and so on. So no, we we represent the entire uh, the entire world of fly fishing. It's not just the United States. Um, so when we put together the exhibits, it's all about presenting a story, and of course, it depends on what that story is as to what we present in the exhibit. Okay, perfect. Well, anything else we left out here? We've kind of touched on a few things as we've gone. Um, before we leave, do you feel like we touched? I mean, it feels like we touched on a number of people that were influential. I'm sure we left a few people out. How, how many How many people did we leave out today on, on some of the important history here? Oh, boy, probably dozens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Truth be told, probably dozens. Yeah, it doesn't. So if they want to dig in, if anybody wants to dig in more, like we said, uh, amff.org, and that's probably the best place to just to send them and let them kind of zip around the website? Yes. Okay. Who else? I'm always curious on another, you know, and you probably know, resources-wise, if somebody wanted to dig into other historic or history uh, resource, you know, fly fishing history resources, where would you send them? Are there other magazines, books, uh, websites, things like that? Yeah, well, the, the web's a wonderful place. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of information available just uh, just from a couple of keystrokes. Uh, there's certainly some wonderful books on, on uh, various aspects of fly fishing. Uh, there are guides that have written books, historians that have written books. Uh, I dare say that as long as you have a computer, and uh, of course, if you're if you're listening to uh, 
uh, to the podcast, and I'm, I'm sure you're at least somewhat aware of a computer, you can find information on just about anything. But I think as far as large amount of information in one place, this museum is really hard to beat. Yeah, this is that's the place because there are some other smaller, uh, I'm sure, yeah, lots of historic places around. And uh, um, that's cool. And I, I'm just thinking I'll have to put a link in the show notes if I can find it. We had a couple episodes that talked about uh, some books that were great that talked about the history. Um, but yeah, it's it's unlimited. I think it's, a, it's all our own, right? We're on our own. Kind of, they can stop by the museum to get some inspiration. But really, we can just start getting online and digging into things and calling people, right? And doing your own research. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, there's any number of historical societies all across this country that'll have, uh, you know, a smattering of information about particular people from that region. One that comes to mind, of course, and, and just an amazing place is the Rangeley Museum up in Maine. There's a, there's a great history up there. Of course, the number of tourists and a lot of them were attracted to the area because of the tremendous angling. So you've got a number of influential people up there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's places like that all around the country. Yeah, that's great. All right, Jim, well, I'll let you get out of here and we'll send everybody over to uh, amff.org. And uh, yeah, just want to thank you for the time today and, and helping us uh, shed some light on some of the history and the, and the people. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to get Sarah on in a, in a few months as well. And she's going to dig into probably more, keep this uh, conversation going. So uh, yeah, thanks for your time today, Jim. Thank you, Dave. You have a great day. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links and everything else we covered today, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash 298, 298 right now. You can also head over to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway, G-I-V-E-A-W-A-W. Let's give away and find out what we have going. I don't know on this one and when it's going. I think we might have, oh man, I think we might have a net, a cool custom net right now. But I, I you have to check it out for yourself. It might also be a trip. We're going to be doing this all year. We're going to be doubling down on these giveaways. I heard from somebody recently who mentioned that, uh, you know, he wanted to see more swag. So that's what I'm trying to uh, get going here. So we're going to have some swag. If you want to, uh, if you want a wet fly swing swag hat, uh, check in with me and let me know. I'd love to hear if you'd rather have a camel hat, a blue hat. What do you want to hear? What do you want to get here? So let me know. Dave at wetflyswing.com. I am going to get out of here. I appreciate you again for supporting the show and for listening again all the way to the end. And I think I'm going to take a quick peek and see what we have coming up next. Give me one second here. Yes, 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 yes. Stay tuned Thursday. Thursday is going to be a, um, I mean, I just call this a barn burner because anything that's that blows me away with somebody that I've been wanting to get on for a long time, I always call it a barn burner. Uh, Ray Troll, if you haven't heard of Ray Troll, he um, he is not a fly fisherman, but he is a fishy, super fishy artist that's got some of the most uh, distinctive uh, and unique stuff out there. This is uh, this is the spawn till you die. Uh, I, I can't even I'm drawing blanks now, but he's got so many so many uh, books and T-shirts out there. I'm just gonna have to let you wait. So check it out, 299, we are one. We're gonna be one episode away from 300 and I still need to work on that episode. I'm not sure, I'm thinking about, um, I've got a couple ideas for a celebration to, uh, but I'm not quite sure. So um, I'm gonna let you get out of here again uh, and I hope to see you soon online, on the water, maybe at a show or maybe anywhere. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.